So today's sermon is don't trust tempters and twisted truth. Don't trust tempters and twisted truth. Well, are you all looking forward to the school year? I hope you have a good semester coming up. I hope, Jane, I hope you have a great semester coming up. And you may be saying to me, wait a minute, I've been out of school for a decade or five decades or three decades. Or, and how about the test coming up? I don't have to take tests anymore. I stopped taking tests. Oh yeah? That's not what God says. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we are in an ongoing educational process, a school year, until he takes us home. And we all are taking tests all the time. Jesus took tests. Did you know that? Jesus himself took tests. The Bible tells us that after Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the Aramos, the desert, the wilderness. And there Jesus fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights. Any of y'all ever met that standard before? Fasting, praying in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights? Well, that's what was going on with Jesus. And it was only then, after all that, that the Bible tells us, Matthew tells us, the tempter, the tempter came to Jesus. And the tempter said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Feed yourself. Jesus answered the tempter and said, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in the holy city, that is in Jerusalem, and said, cast yourself down from this pinnacle because it is written. You like the scripture? I know the scripture really well. The devil knows the scripture really well. He can quote true scripture really well. He quoted the scripture and he said, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up by their hands so that your foot will not strike a rock. Hmm? Says that in the Bible. Jesus responded, it is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then Satan, the devil, the tempter, took Jesus to a very high mountain. And he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And the tempter, the devil, said to Jesus, all these I'll give to you if you will only fall down before me. Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God only and serve him. 
we are reminded in the test that will be laid before you and me this week that there is a tempter and that the world is full of his children or people who seem to act in the same way, whether they're of directly his spirit or his progeny or not. There's a whole lot of temptation going on out in the world, and there's a whole lot of twisted truth going on. I have to imagine that the devil and his demons had a great celebration when social media was developed because he said, finally, exponentially, I can work on these people in nanoseconds now. This is awesome. I can take the truth and do what to it? Well, you can go ahead and see in your sermon notes for today, and if you follow the sermon notes, you're probably already getting the answer that you need to fill in the blank there that I put for you up front. Tempters do what to facts? They twist, twist um, true facts, true facts now, two true facts into easy and reasonable solutions to your fears and your desires. I want more money. I want more fun. I want more power. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about COVID. I'm worried about bankruptcy. I'm worried about losing my job. The tempter says, all valid concerns. Let me give you a really easy answer. Here's the way you can make that A. Here's the way you can be financially set. Here's the way. And in fact, I'm in close contact with many of your political leaders, so they already know the answer. Just come along with me. See, this is the thing about the devil. When the devil tempted Jesus, you'll notice Jesus does not get into a dispute or dismiss the devil because Jesus doesn't say, what you're saying is false. Is Jesus the son of God? Yep. Could Jesus, if he chose to, turn stones into loaves of bread? What do you think? Yep. All the way to the most intimidating of the three, <laughs> we get to the, the third thing, and the third temptation is as Matthew orders them. And um, all the wealth and power and current power and kingdoms of this world, does the devil have control of them? Yes. The Bible says so. What does Jesus himself call Satan? For instance, in John chapter 8 and John chapter 12, what does he call him? The ruler of this world. That's all true. It's got a time limit on it. But you go all the way to the book of Revelation and Satan is given authority for a time. And Satan can take all of that authority that he has and all that, all the facts that he wants to manipulate with you and twist them and twist you any which way he wants to turn you. If you're willing to turn once with him, he'll turn you again and again. You notice Jesus doesn't say, well, wait a minute, you don't have authority. You don't have authority to give me all the kingdoms and the current wealth of this age. He doesn't dispute the devil on this, does he? That's because this is a real temptation. This would have been a bogus temptation. See, you got to understand this about Satan and tempters. If they think you're relatively smart, and obviously Jesus is the top of the list here, right? They're not going to come in and say, this right here is yellow, or this is red. They're not that stupid. They want to con you, and he wants to con you, with facts. 
Admit it. You prayed for a really nice birthday, right? Yeah, I did. And it rained and thunderstormed on your birthday, right? Yeah, it did. Okay, well, that means either God has rejected you and you need to come over to me, or there's not a real God or God doesn't answer prayer. Therefore, ditch your faith and come to me. Did it rain? Sure. Was there a thunderstorm? Sure. It's all factual. The devil and the tempters in our lives and for our children in school and in the world, you got to understand this, the really good ones in the spirit of the deceiver, they're not crude. They take facts and twist them into reasonable solutions to our fears and desires. So that's what tempters do. Now, conversely, um, here's the thing we need to remember from Isaiah. I've been talking about this. We'll talk about this more and more. Trust is the key. Saving faith, as Isaiah, God's word through Isaiah is teaching us, saving faith leads to what? You can fill in the blank on the sermon notes there. Serving faith or faithful serving. Okay. And how does that happen? When believers trust God. That's the answer there. When believers trust God. Because see, here's the key thing that we're learning from Isaiah. It's the issue with Israel. It's the issue with the sons of David, the kings in the line of David. And it goes all the way through. We only get somebody who actually is going to trust the Lord no matter what, when everything goes wrong, when he's on the cross. There's only one. I mean, because everybody else fails to trust when the chips are down. But here's the thing. To serve God the way Israel was called to serve and be a light to the nations, to do that, you've got to trust God. Trust. Trust God. And therefore, guess what happens when you actually trust God? You obey him. See, you're not going to obey God. If you say, I just don't know. You know, I go to church or I sometimes go to church occasionally when it works my schedule. And I pray occasionally when I remember to. But I just don't seem to be following God's word very much. It's because you don't know him and don't trust him. Get to know him. Come to him in Jesus. Trust is the foundation of a life of faithfulness. And it's also the foundation of not being twisted around by tempters who twist the truth. If you say, well, this is Bible stuff, this is church stuff, this doesn't apply. Look at the current political and economic and business realm in which we live. This is very practical stuff, folks. <laughs> but it ultimately is practical into your eternal destination. Trust. Trust is the issue. Trust the Lord. So... Before we turn to our scripture today, let me give you a little more prep. And this is the fact that I talked about in last Sunday's sermon, the fact that Isaiah chapters 36 through 39 are the axis. You have to understand this to read Isaiah are the axis of the book of Isaiah. And I gave you, I just put them in the notes and I read through them briefly last Sunday and that sermon about prayer last Sunday. You go back and look at the notes and listen to the sermon. Let me give you a little bit more about how Isaiah 36 through 39 is the axis of the book of Isaiah. Today, just briefly, set the stage for what we're going to be reading in Isaiah 36 primarily. Let me tell you what's going on in the book of Isaiah. In, in the cycles of Isaiah, you get to another climax about Zion that plays out in Isaiah 35, Isaiah chapter 35. 
And you get to Isaiah 35. This is a climax of a cycle in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 35, okay? And then I'm going to tell you in a minute about Isaiah 40. So y'all can do math. You all did go to school, right? So you know that 36 through 39 is in between 35 and 40, right? Okay. So Isaiah 35, what is it talking about? It's talking about a highway in a blossoming desert or wilderness. Both Hebrew terms are used, desert, wilderness. And what's going on there is, you know, in the desert, in the des desolate place, all of a sudden there's streams of living water. This is an image that you get in the Bible of the new creation and things being, you know, are being saved and the new creation. That, that there's, there's, there's all kinds of streams of living water in the desert and everything's blooming. And there is a highway that is specifically named in Isaiah 35, the way of holiness. And what's going to happen on the way of holiness? The ransomed, the redeemed, will come to return to Jerusalem or to Zion, the exalted Zion, the new Zion, by way of this highway of holiness, this way of holiness. That's Isaiah 35. Go over to Isaiah 40. Most of you, if you know the Bible a little bit, know Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Uh, prepare a highway in the where? In the desert. And in the wilderness, so remember Isaiah 35, desert, wilderness, highway, highway of holiness for the redeemed, the ransom to come to Zion. Now all of a sudden we get to Isaiah 40 and guess what's going on? We have a highway in the desert. The desert is blooming, like Isaiah 35, but now it's even more intense because guess who's coming? Not just the ransom, not just the redeemed, but God himself is coming. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way. The way of what? Was the way of holiness? In Isaiah 35, now it's the way of the Lord himself. And all flesh will see him together, the glory of the Lord. That's Isaiah 35, Isaiah 40. The two big juncture points, well, what's in the middle of the axis? 36 through 39. We preached on, we looked at 38 and 39 last week. As I told you, chronologically, theologically, it comes after because it bridges into 40. Chronologically, it's before where we're getting to today. So what's in the middle? Well, Isaiah 36 through 39, and today, Isaiah 36. What's going on in Isaiah 36? Man, we are back from the future glory to the present ugly reality. Isaiah 36. And it is ugly, uglier than anything you or I have ever had to deal with. Brutal Assyria has taken all the other fortified cities of Judah. Lachish, the last big city, the other big city in Judah, is about to go down. You can go over to the Cobb Institute. You can look at the replica of the Assyrian relief on the wall there in the Cobb Institute. It's a replica of the original that you can see over in the British Museum in London. And what's it showing? The siege ramp, and the people getting killed and falling off the wall and being speared and their heads cut off in Lachish. Now that same brutal army is coming to Jerusalem. And here's the thing I have to tell you and what the, Jew, the people of Jerusalem needed to understand. It's all about trust. Will you trust the Lord in the crisis? Trust is the issue all through Isaiah and definitely in what we're going to read now. So 
Isaiah chapter 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. That is one little sentence, one little verse. That is a devastating verse. That is a devastating verse. That's like in the, in the Civil War, if you said all the cities of the South except Richmond, which is hanging on by a thread, is left. They've already burned Atlanta. They've burned Savannah, all this kind of stuff. This is the only thing that's left. On Sennacherib's prison, prism, he himself, in his annals, Sennacherib says, As for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured, captured 46 of his fortified cities, along with many smaller towns taken in battle with my battering rams. I took as plunder over 200,000 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camel, oxen, and sheep. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. That's what the annals said when they found it in Nineveh a little over a century ago, matching up totally with this 36 verse 1. So this is a situation. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Same place Isaiah had appeared years earlier to Ahaz. Now he's out there at the aqueduct, the water source. And there came to him Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joab, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them and fight us, in other words. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land and destroy it? The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah. In other words, Hebrew, Southern Hebrew. Within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, This my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to these men, these good 
sensible people sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah in, in Hebrew. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh, the Lord, by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace, make your shalom with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of their Rab Shekah. So, what are we going to do? Trust is always the issue. Isaiah chapter 36 makes this abundantly clear. I've got it in the notes for you. Simple point here. The Hebrew verb batach for trust is used seven times. We are not supposed to miss that. It's used seven times. If you look at the English translation, you'll miss one of the verbs, okay? But the, the one in verse four about resting on this trust of yours, that word is also batacha. It's also batak. It's the same verb. It's just translated as resting on this trust of yours. And yeah, the trust word there, the noun, habitukon, is also the same thing, batak, trust. It's, it's a trust issue. You are really supposed to get this out of Isaiah chapter 36. And for us, we're all supposed to get it. Even if you say, well, I'm not into all that Bible stuff, Martin, let me tell you this. Trust is the heart of the issue, and it's the issue of your heart. Let me repeat that. Trust is the heart of the issue, and it is the issue of your heart right now. Will you trust the Lord? You'll notice also there's a lot of talk about deceiving and misleading and, you know, deliverance in those verses too. But let's go ahead and go to point number two. So trust is the issue. It is always the issue. It is the issue of salvation. But let's, let's, let's develop that a little bit with number two. Um, discern tempters, assured arrogance, and cleverness, Allah, the ruler of this age. Here's the thing, like I've already said, really good tempters and definitely the tempter 
they don't mess around with throwing out bogus stuff that you can sniff out immediately. They're going to take facts and twist them just a little bit, just a little bit. And that's what's going on here. Almost everything that the Rabshakeh says is true. Egypt is not the reliable deliverer. Assyria can take Egypt out, and they're certainly not going to rush up to try to deliver Jerusalem at this point. You know, um, do words defeat people? Not human words, right? That's not going to work. Uh, well, what about the deal about Hezekiah tearing down all the local churches, all the local high places? Yeah, he did that because he wanted to be faithful to the law of the Lord. And he said, we need to return to the law of the Lord. We can't have all these local little temples and tabernacles going on in high places. So he tore down the churches. Were a lot of old timers in Judah upset about this? Yes, he messed with our church. That's where my grandmama um, used to pray. And that's where my granddaddy got circumcised and he tore it down. God's going to reject us. And so you see this, this Rob Shekhar, man, he has done his research. He is brilliant and he knows his stuff. He's like, see, God, the Lord God, your God has turned against you because Hezekiah took all your high places out. Don't you get it? And by the way, what about this thing about how God sent him? Yes. Isaiah chapter 10, verse five. Assyria is the rod of God to bring judgment upon Israel and Judah. God is actually temporarily using Assyria to bring judgment. That's actually correct. I mean, he's got us on a roll right now, man. It's like, look, he, he knows everything. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he's got all the facts. And obviously God has forsaken us. And obviously Hezekiah has taken us down this bad road trying to be uh, renewed faithfulness to God. Let's cave. This guy's offering a social welfare net. You know, this, this, uh, this really nice guy, um, Sennacherib, is going to give us our own vines and our own vineyards and everything. Let's just go ahead and cave to him. His government sounds really good. What do you think? Okay, so that gets us to discern tempter's assured arrogance. Notice, I mean, and it's really underlined here. He is the, the king. Sennacherib is the king, and there's just a double underline it. Uh, he's the great king, right? The Dolmelech. I mean, he's, he's the, he is the, the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Uh, what do you think? No, he's not. And um, let me just encourage you this, and you can teach your children this too. Sometimes you just need to be quiet. You don't have to get into debate with everyone, and you certainly don't start negotiating with the devil. They follow Hezekiah's command, and not only the leaders, but also all the people. This is very impressive. They're probably scared to death, but they do keep their mouths shut. Did you notice that? The Rabbi Shekhar is probably surprised. He's surprised there aren't people up there saying, hey, hey, we're going to die anyway. Let's go ahead. Let's just try this guy out. Let's go ahead and cave. Let's come out of the city. They don't do it. Discern and never underestimate the way the tempters can twist truth. You've got to be on your guard. Okay? Sometimes they're your best friends or stuff that's being spouted through your best friends or your best friend's social media. And then number three, don't trust tempters and twisted truth. That's our sermon title for today. Turn to God for deliverance. So what happens? Real faith turns to God no matter what, even when everything looks lost. And so... 
We'll pick this story up next week with the incredible deliverance that happens. But today, just chapter 37, verses 1 through 4. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. This is serious stuff now. He knows he's against, he's on the ropes. He's totally on the ropes. And went into the house of the Lord. He goes to the temple. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. In other words, we can't even deliver our babies. We are totally on the ropes. We're within a hair of being exterminated. Verse 4, it may be that the Lord your God, go back and listen to the sermon last week and what I talked about with chapter 39 and Hezekiah's unfaithfulness. Notice he says to Isaiah, the Lord your God. He's being humble. He's confessing his own sin right now in the midst of this request. He's not saying the Lord our God. He is saying the Lord your God. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of Rebshakah, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Christian, do not follow the twisting of the truth. It is rampant in this age in which we live. Turn to the Lord. Trust in him. And that's why I have it in the notes at the end. Remember last week's sermon. Do not stop praying. Never stop praying. Teach your children to never stop praying and don't stop praying for them. And come to the Lord. He will deliver. The Lord is your God. Jesus is the truth. He doesn't just take pieces of the truth. He is the living truth now and for eternity. Trust in him and don't stop talking to him. You're not that smart, but he is. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.